Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, June 6th. Right now it is Wednesday morning, June 3rd. And once again, we have English vids or truth vids here with us to address, to help us address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is part 17 of, of this series of presentations. I'm, um, well, well, I never anticipated when we began it that it would go on for this long. But now, these last few weeks, I'm not surprised that it has. And it looks like we're going to have um, quite a few weeks more before we're actually finished with this material. Hello, TruthVids. Thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, as we get more and more into this series, it becomes clearer and clearer that Weissman is always defending the Jews and even Cain's murder. He tries to blame it on other people. And, um, you know, I think it's reasonable that he infiltrated CI for that reason, to make CI comfortable for Jews, just like how Jews infiltrated British Israel and they twisted it to make it that the Jews still had a special place so that it was all comfortable, much like Judeo-Christianity today. Um, you know, as we go on, it becomes clearer and clearer. Right, Bill? Well, well, right. And and with British Israel, it seems that there was never any serious resistance to its acceptance of Jewry and, and to all of the um, non-biblical heresies that it teaches in relation to the Jews. They may as well be Judeo-Christians. But in American Christian identity, there was always a... Um, a thread of dissenters who did understand the truth of two seed line because it is the truth and always resisted Charles Weissman. The problem is that throughout most of the history of American Christian identity, they were in the minority. And, and we're hoping to turn that around. I mean, that's been my endeavor at Christagenia for a long time is to put the, um, the people who who are in bed with the devil to put them in the minority of identity Christian voices. <clears throat> That's our hope anyway. And it has been for 20 years probably. We've tarried with Charles Weissman's prolonged disputations revolving around John 8.44 and Matthew chapter 23 verses 34 and 35 for several of these presentations now, and we are still not through all of Weissman's arguments in relation to these passages. Some of those arguments revolve around the question of who killed the prophets in the Old Testament. In that passage from Matthew chapter 23, Yahshua Christ declared that the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah and Oddly, in English, that's from A to Z, and that's a, that, that's a term that we use to describe absolutely all of a particular object or series or collection, right, from A to Z. And in Greek, Z is not the last letter of the alphabet, nor is it in Hebrew. 
So it only works in English, all the prophets from A to Z, that their blood will come upon a particular race, the liability for those crimes. We would assert that according to the laws of God, that that race must be guilty for the crimes for which it is going to be punished. Or if the charge is false, then according to the law, the individual making the charge must suffer the penalty. We cannot imagine that Christ our God was making false charges or acting contrary to his law. We can't imagine that. So we must really inspect the scriptures to imagine how this particular race would be held liable for all of those, all of those crimes, for all of, the, all of that bloodshed. In the actions of men and nations, there is collective guilt, and then there is individual guilt. When one nation wars against another, the men who actually do the shooting are compelled by their rulers and generally not motivated to commit murder on their own volition. So if the war were unjust, the rulers would be guilty individually, although the nation which did their, bid their bidding would share collective guilt. Therefore, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, addressing men of Judea in reference to Christ, had said, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, because God knew that these things were going to happen, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The wicked hands were not those of the Romans, but the Jews, those who stood in the prohitorium demanding of Pilate that he be crucified and giving Pilate no alternative. But the nation as a whole shared a collective guilt for the deed as they had suffered wicked rulers. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we read, For it was so, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of Yahweh, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them fifty by fifty in a cave, meaning he hid them in two different caves, and fed them with bread and water. So we see individual guilt for the murder of those prophets was placed on Jezebel. But then we read in a prayer of Elijah one chapter later in 1 Kings chapter 19, I have been very jealous for, the, for, for Yahweh God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. There is a profession of collective guilt on the children of Israel for what Jezebel was primarily guilty of as an individual. So in one place, Jezebel is blamed for it. In another place, the children of Israel collectively.
are given the blame. Likewise, we pointed out that in 1 Samuel, where Saul sought to have the priest of Yahweh slain, the men of Israel would not comply, but Doeg the Edomite, or Doeg, I should say. Doeg the Edomite was happy to comply, and Doeg was also described as an informant against David, who himself was a prophet. But aside from these few instances, there is little further information in regards to individual guilt in the death of the prophets. As the historical narratives are concise and do not provide the details. But where collective guilt is placed, once again, in Jeremiah chapter 2, the sins of the people are related to Baal worship and race mixing, which is evidently with the Canaanites among them, and that is corroborated in Ezekiel chapter 16. Later, in Jeremiah chapter 23, the prophets of that time are charged with having themselves been guilty of such things. So where Christ spoke of blame for the deaths of the prophets, he placed the blame not on individual men of Judah or Israel, but on Jerusalem, where he said in Luke chapter 13, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perishes out of or outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen does gather her brood? under her wings, and ye would not. Why wouldn't they? We were told in the Old Testament why the children of Israel would ultimately go into apostasy. We were told ahead of time that it would be because they did not kill all of the Canaanites, but rather they let the Canaanites live among them, the ones that they refused to kill, that they were commanded to kill. So this passage that I just cited from Luke chapter 13, it should be cross-referenced to Ezekiel chapter 16. Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And there, Ezekiel is telling us the reasons for the sins in Jerusalem. The people were warned ahead of time, 800 years before Ezekiel, in the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, and judges that if they left these Canaanites to live among them, that they would ultimately follow the ways of the Canaanites. They would intermarry, intermingle with the Canaanites. They would become apostate from God. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what Jeremiah and Ezekiel are telling us happened. That's the reason for the apostasy. That is the reason 
for the deaths of the prophets. That is what Christ is attributing it to in Matthew chapter 23, where he tells us that Cain, where he tells us that the race of Cain, the people whose parents are, are vipers, would be held accountable for the blood of all the prophets from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah. So we would assert that in order to understand who is truly responsible for the deaths of the prophets, the phenomenon of race mixing in ancient Judea, in ancient Jerusalem, described prophetically in Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 16 must be understood, as well as the parable of the good and bad figs in Jeremiah chapter 24. There were two baskets of figs set before the temple of Yahweh. They represented people. One had good figs, which were likened to certain of the men of Judah, whom Yahweh would reestablish and whom he would rebuild, whom he would cause once again to flourish. But then there were bad figs, which were not described as Judah or any portion of Judah. However, a significant number of certain men of Judah would be delivered to them to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 9. This prophecy of Jeremiah concerns only those people of Judah who were left in Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, after the Assyrians had taken most of Judah away with the captivity of Israel, as they were the portion of Judah, as they were the remnant portion of Judah, which was taken away to Babylon. Charles Weissman fails to see the big picture. The parable of the good and bad figs was a prophecy of what was to ultimately happen to the princes and people of Judah who were taken into Babylonian captivity. And the subsequent history of Judea reveals the truth of the prophecy, reveals the fulfillment of the prophecy. Many of the people who returned remained pure and did not mix themselves with the Canaanites and Edomites. My sheep hear my voice. Those people became Christians, and if they did not, eventually they intermixed with the Edomites, who, like them, continued to be identified as Judeans. Many others did indeed intermarry with Canaanites and Edomites over the two centuries before the ministry of Christ. And as we explained at great length throughout this address of Weissman's book, this race mixing in Judea was prophesied by Malachi. The historic circumstances which led to it were prophesied by Ezekiel. And it is described in the pages of Flavius Josephus 
and Strabo of Cappadocia, as well as in the epistles of Paul of Tarsus and in the words of Christ himself. One thing Weissman asserted concerns the words of Christ, where he spoke to his adversaries concerning the blood of the prophets, and he said, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation, or more properly, race. In a portion of his argument in respect to those words, Weissman said, No mongrel or non-Israelite could ever have this judgment upon them. We would contend that no Israelite could ever have judgment for the blood of, of Abel upon them. The word of God does indeed promise to judge and condemn non-Israelites and the mongrels. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, the goats are nations which are destined for the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The goats are not judged for how they treated other goats. The goats, in the end, are judged for how they treated the sheep. Bastards being the result of fornication or race mixing, in Revelation chapter 2, Christ himself says of Jezebel and of those who commit fornication with her, who are his people, and I will kill her children with death. So we clearly see that bastards are indeed judged and punished. They're not judged and punished for whether they did naughty or nice. God is not Santa Claus. They're judged and punished simply because they are bastards. They are judged and destroyed. All of the Edomites are promised judgment in the prophecies of Obadiah and Malachi. And Paul, in Hebrews chapter 12, does indeed attribute Esau's rejection to his having committed fornication. But Charles Weissman would have one believe that a bastard is free from the judgment of God. So in his view, it must be a wonderful thing to be a bastard. I wonder why Weissman had yeah. that position. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say it's very clear in Scripture that Yahweh hates bastards and that we should hate them as well. Um, it's very clear when he's when he sends our ancestors into Canaan, he says, kill them all, spare none, not the women, not the children, don't have remorse, don't have compassion, just do it. And that all this um, empathy, it's a modern construct forced upon us, you know, with the media and education. And that even 100, 200 years ago, many of our people didn't naturally feel that. It's only when it's forced upon us. And that's why it's here. And many people are still trapped in it, even if they are kind of coming to CI, unfortunately. Well, well right. Even 100 years ago in America, if you were a bastard, if you were um, a half-breed, you, you were basically cursed. People wanted nothing to do with you. White people would push you to the fringes. And when you married, you most likely married somebody that wasn't white. Because nobody wanted bastard children. I, I remember there was a popular 
song in the 1970s by a um, pop music du duo, Sonny and Cher, and, and it was Halfbreed. The title of the song, I think, was Halfbreed. And, and she was singing, lamenting the fact that she was a half-breed. She was part some sort of um, Indian prairie nigger, squat monster, some, some sort of Western Plains Indian, and, and part white. So she was a half-breed. That's why she was singing the song. And, and the song actually helped to um, turn people's affection towards half-breeds. That's the reason for that. Music is propaganda. So American attitudes towards half-breeds, and it didn't start there, but that's where it really began to end. That, that's where um, the antipathy towards bastards really started to end. It was in the 1970s, probably. But for, for hundreds of years, people rejected half-breeds. Nobody wanted to marry a half-breed. If, if you were um, part Indian in many states in, in, in America, you, you were forced to live on reservations with the Indians. You, you weren't accepted as being white. You didn't have an opportunity to run around um, white communities and couple with young white girls like you do today and, and pollute the whole damned tribe of people in a particular state or, or the whole city. That, and that's what they're doing now. Charles Weiss. Yeah, and that's the natural way we have been always. It's natural part of our DNA. That That's how we feel, right? The the culture, it, it's always been that way. And right. uh, if it wasn't natural, the Jews wouldn't need to constantly pull it in the media over and over again to constantly um, bring this empathy and bring this acceptance. Absolutely. And Charles Weissman's theology that he propagated throughout Christian identity has facilitated this, has, has on a small scale, because he's nothing compared to um, mainstream television stations, but on a small scale, he did reach many identity Christians who repeated everything that he taught in his book and its treachery. And he's helped to facilitate this corruption of our society. This man isn't Christian identity. He, he's a treacherous Jew bastard himself. That's what Charles Weissman is. And everybody who followed him, all of these so-called CI pastors who revere and followed Charles Weissman, and there's a, there's a long list of them. They're all just as responsible for his treachery as he is because they didn't see it. They refused to see it. They refused to do what we're doing and compare this book of a line and a paragraph at a time to what the scriptures actually say and teach. At the end of our last presentation addressing Charles Weissman's book, where we are still in chapter four, we've been here for weeks, right? We left off with a statement by Weissman on page 38, where he said, the argument that Jesus was tracing these people back to Cain is a failure to see the big picture. There we had asserted that it was Weissman who refused to see the big picture as he himself continues denying the big picture. 
Doing so, he has failed to read many verses properly, and then he bases his claims denying to see line on his obviously errant reading of those verses. We also cannot forget that Weissman had also claimed earlier in his book that Hebrew theology changed with the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, and that Christ and his apostles followed along with that change. Of course, we proved that to be a lie. So, Weissman not only denies the big picture, but he also denies the veracity of the later and New Testament scriptures, just as a Jew should be expected to do. Weissman acts just as a Jew. He denies that the New Testament is truth from God. Oh, they were only following along with the religion of the Romans and the Persians who believed in dualism. Get the hell out of here. No, Christ wasn't doing that. Christ was here telling us the cold, hard truth if we would only open our hearts and our minds and listen to it. But Weissman denies all of that cold, hard truth. Every bit of it. I wish I could pull him out of the lake of fire so I could throw his ass back in there again. That's what I wish I could do. I could punk slap him, bitch him out, and throw him back in there. Right back where he came from. So now, as Weissman proceeds, he continues to elaborate on at least one of the verses which he has misread where he actually tries to defend his purposeful misreading of John 8:44. Doing that, he continues to lie about scripture, making further claims based on unfounded premises because he offers no scripture in order to support them. This has been a rather consistent pattern throughout his arguments against 2C line. So now, after he has denied the fact that Christ had placed the liability for the blood of the prophets on the descendants of Cain. We shall proceed with Charles Weissman from where we had last left off, and we shall return to, and, and Weissman shall return to John 8:44. And he says on page 38, and I'm actually going to try to read these. Um, five short paragraphs without too many comments or digressions. Weissman says, along this same line, satanic seed line advocates mention John 8.44. Now, Weissman, had, and, and here's my first digression already, right? Weissman had um, been discussing John 8.44, but then broke to discuss Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 and 35. Now he's bringing up John 8, 44 again, as if he didn't discuss it before, almost. And he says, after Jesus says the scribes and Pharisees are of their father, the devil, he says, he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. Now Weissman responding to that scripture, which is a part of John 8, 44, says, it is said that Jesus traced the Jews back to Cain, who was supposedly, supposedly, a murderer from the beginning, 
But this verse does not mention Cain. The subject is the devil. And it is this devil, or serpent, which was a murderer from the beginning. The serpent is the devil because of its opposition to God's order. But how was this devil, or serpent, the first murderer? It was this enmity which brought about death to the Adamic race. This is Weissman's contention. He was a murderer from the beginning. It was through him, the devil, that Adam transgressed. And right now, Weissman is actually giving us a citation. He's quoting somebody else. In consequence of which death entered into the world and slew him and all his posterity. Now, doing that, he cited Adam Clark and Clark's work, A Commentary on the Holy Bible, volume 3, page 581. There's a copy of um, Weissman's, I'm sorry, there's a copy of Adam Clark's commentary, which I have here from Clifton Emmeheiser's library. It's um, evidently a longer publication than the one Weissman is citing because it has um, six volumes and, and they're relatively pretty thick. They're all at least a thousand pages, I think. In response to Adam Clark's commentary claiming that the devil was the murderer from the beginning and not Cain, Weissman says, the people Jesus spoke to were followers of this devil or serpent because they too had a murderous desire within them. They exhibited this in their desire to kill Christ. Thus, the devil was their father in this sense. And I guess Weissman can't even fathom that Cain was a devil because he was actually the son of the devil. That's why Cain was a devil, because kind begets kind. For the same reason, Judas Iscariot was a devil. When Christ called, when Christ said, have I not chosen you 12, and one of you is a devil, he was talking about his 12 apostles. And Christ knew that one of them, he knew ahead of time, that one of them was a devil. Long before Judas Iscariot committed any sin or could be accused of any wrongdoing, Christ identified him as a devil. Weissman can't fathom the fact that Christ did that because he was actually a descendant of the devil. I guess Jesus is just calling names rather than stating facts. He's engaging in ad hominem rather than stating plain facts. That's how Weissman treats Christ. He doesn't even believe that Christ represents the word of God because Christ is, is teaching Persian dualism. That's what he said. That's what Weissman said. <laughs> so this is the quality of this so-called scholarship that was followed by, um, I, I, would, I think, Robert Balakias, but I'm not going to say that because I'm not entirely sure. But I do know Dave Barley, Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, Ted Weiland, they all followed this. They all blindly followed along with this, maybe not blindly, right, with, with this treachery. So Weissman asks, 
Weissman asks, but how was this devil or serpent the first murderer? Well, Christ never said that their father was the serpent. He said their father was the devil. So Weissman is making that association, right? Then rather than giving us citations in scripture to support his assertion, he instead gives us a passage from the commentary of Adam Clark. Adam Clark was a 19th century Methodist. But Adam Clark had no scripture to support it either. I went back and looked at Clifton's copy of Clark's commentary, right? Checking our own copy of Adam Clark's commentary in the wider context of Clark's statement. I read the whole page. He offered no substantiation for the assertion, but to cite Hugo Grotius, the 17th century Dutch Calvinist. That's what Adam Clark did. He made this, um, this conjectural insistence that the devil of John 844 must have been the serpent who must have been the first murderer because he introduced death into the world. That's what Weissman's saying. The serpent introduced death into the world because he, it was through him that Adam transgressed. That's what Clark said. In consequence of which death entered into the world. So he's blaming the serpent on death entering into the world, right? And based, and, 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 Adam Clark didn't cite one scripture to prove that assertion. He cited Hugo Grotius, a 17th century Dutch Calvinist. So whom should we turn for authority? Should we turn to Adam Clark, who in, in, in turn turned to Hugo Grotius? Or should we turn to scripture for our authority? If You'd the, think Christ would have worded it differently then, wouldn't he? He would have just put it in plain words that the devil is the murderer because he brought it into the world. Right. How, however, you know. Right. Exactly. Christ wasn't a, a madman. He, he would have just spoke in plain words then. Exactly. Precisely. If this was true, it would have been explained to us somewhere in Scripture. Now... If it was explained to us somewhere in scripture, then you would think that Hugo Grotius, who's said to be a prodigy and a genius, would have been able to cite a scripture that explained it, but he didn't. And then Adam Clark, who was a very revered Bible commentator, he would have been able to find a scripture to cite it, to cite in order to prove it, and he didn't. And then Charles Weissman, who claims to be an expert in the law and whom a lot of identity pastors of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s revered as a scholar, you'd think he would have been able to cite one passage of scripture to substantiate the position, and he didn't. So I would only ask, who really made this shit up? Who really made it up? <laughs> I mean, Grotius it probably goes back before Grotius. So who did, who told him this? Jews were writing Bible commentaries for Christians, 
Converso Jews, and I pointed this out many times throughout my series on Martin Luther especially, because Martin Luther followed those Converso Jews. Paula Burgos what was, what was one of them, one of the most significant ones. There were others, and they were Converso Jews who had written um, Bible commentaries. Nicholas of Lyra was another one. These people can be identified. They were famous in the Middle Ages among scholars. They were Jews that were converted. They saw the light of Christ, and they explained the Bible to us. Yeah, right. So we had the devil teaching these medieval scholars the Bible. And Calvin followed them. And Grotius was a Calvinist. Calvin may have actually been one of them. That's often asserted. I haven't seen proof, but it's often claimed or asserted. So we had Jews teach us the Bible. Jews taught Protestants the Bible. And Weissman's citing these Protestants instead of citing the Bible. If the devil... Do you think it might go all the way back to the Jews in Alexandria or Samaria? Right right from there? Yeah, right. It does go back to Jews in Alexandria. And, and, and they were... Jews were the first Gnostics. Philo Judaeus, if you read Philo Judaeus, and any, I haven't read all of Philo, I've only read small parts of Philo, but I could identify him as a proto-Gnostic based on what I've read. These ideas that in scripture, words mean different things than what they say, they're basically Gnostic ideas, and, and to a certain degree, they're Platonist ideas. And Neoplatonists and Gnostics adopted these ideas so that they could form their own doctrines from Scripture. Paul had said to, in his epistle to the Corinthians that he would rather speak five words in an assembly and be understood than to be able to speak a multitude of words in a language. And in other words, Paul of Tarsus wrote, in plain Greek, so that plain everyday people could understand him. So when Paul talked about father, he meant what plain everyday people interpreted to be a father, which was a literal ancestor. When Paul talked about seed, he intended to describe what plain everyday people understood to be literal descendants or literal offspring. Paul wasn't talking in any Gnostic code words, Gnostic code language. When Paul talked about brethren, he defined that for himself in Romans chapter 9 as his kinsmen according to the flesh, not some spiritual brother because y'all belong to the same Masonic lodge. That's not how Paul used the word brother as a mason or a Jew in a synagogue, he used the term brother. Well, Jews in synagogue don't really use it that way. They only have convinced Gentiles to use it that way. A Jew wouldn't consider a Gentile a brother, but the Jew wants to convince Gentiles to consider Jews and, and niggers and squat monsters and taco goblins as brothers because they believe in Jesus. And that's just not true. That's not Paul. how Paul used the word. He used the word so that 
plain, everyday, ordinary people of the Roman, Greco-Roman world, how they understood it. And they understood the term brother to mean a man who was related to one by blood. If the devil, meaning the serpent of Genesis chapter 3, was the first murderer because he caused Adam to sin, then we should find scripture explaining how he caused Adam to sin. And both Clark and Weissman may have done so before us, or even Grotius, right? None of them did it. None of them found that scripture. Yet Paul of Tarsus tells us the contrary, where he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. If the devil was a murderer for somehow causing Adam to sin, then why is the guilt for Adam's sin placed upon Adam? Again, in the wisdom of Solomon, we read in chapter 2, through envy of the devil came death into the world. That envy is described in Genesis chapter 3, where Eve saw the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Now Eve did that, being deceived. But through Eve, death didn't come into the world. Here's where death came into the world. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. That's how death came into the world. While Eve had been deceived to commit this indiscretion, Adam was not deceived, where it says, and he did eat. He made a conscious decision under his own volition to partake in his wife's sin rather than punish her for it. And therefore, only Adam can be held accountable for Adam's sin and not the devil. Then in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam is called to account for his sin. He tried to place the blame for his sin on his wife. He was a feminist, right? Adam was the first feminist. He tried to place the blame for his sin on his wife, but not on the serpent. So where the punishment of Adam is pronounced, the word of Yahweh said that because thou hast hearkened, he made a conscious decision unto the voice of thy wife, not the serpent. If the serpent was guilty for Adam's sin, it would say, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of the serpent. But that's not what it says. And that's not how Adam reacted. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and has eaten of the tree. That was the reason for his having been punished. Yahweh did not state that Adam was being punished because he followed the serpent or that the serpent had caused Adam to sin. So, the genius, so Bill, prodigy... Um, I'm should sorry, Adam have really um, rejected Eve or at least waited for Yahweh to see what he should do, whether he should have a new wife or whether it would be allowed him to take Eve? Absolutely. Adam was given the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was Adam's responsibility to tend the garden, to 
carry that command forward. That was his responsibility. Eve ate from the tree. Eve violated, transgressed the only law which Adam was given. And he didn't recognize it. Instead, he went along with her. He hearkened to the voice of his wife. That was a conscious decision on Adam's part when he certainly had another alternative, which was to request of God what should be done with Eve for committing this transgression. A man has two alternatives. If your wife um, commits adultery, the law tells you not to take her back. A man has two alternatives, to take her back and live with the sin or to reject her and go find another wife. Adam should have rejected her and held her accountable to the law. And he didn't. He failed. That's how he failed. That's how death came into the world. Adam had two choices laying before him, God or Eve. Not the serpent. Eve sinned. Eve was deceived, as Paul explained. Adam was not deceived. So Adam knew what his choices were, and he chose his wife over God. <clears throat> so this is very clear in Scripture, and it proves that Hugo Grotius, the prodigy and the genius, isn't such a genius. He should have recognized this, and Adam Clark should have recognized this, and Charles Weissman certainly should have recognized it. It's right there in front of our faces in, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and, and, um, and, and 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's right there. Paul upholds this again in Romans chapter 5 where he says, and I'll read verses 12 and 14. Wherefore, as by one man, not by a man and a woman, not by a serpent, as by one man sin entered into the world and sin by death, and, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Adam is the one man through whom sin entered into the world, as he made that conscious decision to join the transgression in the transgression of his deceived wife. Once this is understood, it must be admitted that the devil was not the murderer from the beginning, referred to by Christ in John 8.44. Paul explained once again that Adam was responsible for his own sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he said, for as in Adam all die, he didn't say as in the serpent. He didn't say as in Adam and Eve. The serpent was the deceiver. Eve was the deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. He made a conscious decision. It was his own choice. And he introduced death into the world by taking the wrong choice. The serpent didn't do it to Adam. Adam did it to himself. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Note that Paul did not say, for as in the devil all die, which is what Weissman is claiming and what Adam Clark had claimed. But neither man could support the claim with even one citation from Scripture. Not one. 
They didn't offer one, no scriptural authority for their claim. And every scriptural authority we can find refutes their claim. Cain was the first murderer recorded in scripture. Cain was the first murderer connected to Adam, Eve, and the Genesis account, which is an account of the beginning. That's what Genesis means. And therefore, only Cain could possibly be the murderer from the beginning described by Christ in John chapter 8, verse 44. Once again, Charles Weissman is found to be lying. He's lying. And in this regard, Grotius was also a lie. A, a liar. And and Adam Clark was also a liar. They were liars. They were probably liars because the truth was not open to them. Their eyes were still sealed shut. They were doing the best they could, in my opinion, in the time and context in which they lived. But Weissman was a purposeful liar. Weissman is treacherous. He had an opportunity to accept, examine, and accept the truth and refused. Now we're on page 39 of this book, and I'm going to continue for three short paragraphs, probably more than we've covered of his book in, in the last couple of weeks at, at one time, right? Satanic seedline proponents often use the term canites, C-A-I-N-I-T-E-S, to refer to those who are descendants of Cain. The term does have scriptural merit, since Cain did have a lineage and descendants, as are mentioned in Genesis chapter 4, to the sixth generation. And, and I believe that Moses wrote that lineage out, recorded it, because it was important for us to recognize as they are the Kenites, K-E-N-I-T-S, who are mentioned as a tribe in later scripture. But there's confusion because the word Kenite also means a smith. So sometimes Kenites referred to later in scripture were actually just smiths. And sometimes it's this tribe of Kenites. And we have to pay attention to the context in order to understand who it is being referred to by the name. And, and part of the confusion as to whether the term begins with a hard C, Canites, or a hard K, Kenites, is because the original Hebrew letter with which the name began was a Q, was our equivalent to a Q. So sometimes that Q, in, in, this is also true in ancient Greek, the ancient Greeks had a Q in their alphabet, and they eventually dropped it. And, and the Q words all became K words, for the most part. So this um, Q letter causes um, a little confusion, because sometimes it's transliterated as a C, and the letter C was always hard. The Greeks didn't have a C. But in Latin, they did. And where you see a Greek K, you often see a Latin C. The term Chimerians, it is exemplary of that. It's always spelled with a C in, in ancient Latin histories. But that's because the Latin C was actually hard. And they made little use of the K. So 
That's just a slight cultural difference. A problem, and I'll continue with Weissman, a problem with the use of the term Canaanite is that it is often misconstrued with the term Canaanites, a name which is derived from Canaan, not Cain. There is no evidence that Cain's descendants intermixed with the Canaanites. And of course, the first sentence of that paragraph is correct. And the second sentence is wrong. He continues, one more paragraph. It is thus, it thus is not sound to use the terms interchangeably. And of course, we would agree. The term Canaanites is also used to refer to the Jews, both of Christ's time and today. And it's true that a lot of CI people do that. The use of that term in reference to the Jews of Christ's time is completely inaccurate since those Jews were actually Israelites. And of course, that's bullshit. And we've proven that. The term Jew is just a mistranslation for Judean. And yes, that we agree with. So here Weissman makes some valid points as Kenite, where the term is used in reference to a tribe, is sometimes spelled Canite. And that in turn is often confused with the term Canaanite by novices in Christian identity circles. However, we go to great pains to explain the differences between these terms, and our endeavor is not to confuse them. However, where Weissman claims, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, doesn't it appear in the Old Testament sometimes there's just Cain for Kenite, and, and translators just made that Kenite? They realized it was referring to descendants of Cain. Okay, is the word Kenite ever in a singular form and translated? Yeah, yeah as that's the, what I meant to say. Just as, Cain. As the tribe. You know, I may have done that study once, but if I did, I don't remember it specifically. Okay. Okay. Here is the word um, Cain in. Numbers chapter 24, verse 22. And it's a proper noun, no gender, no number. It's not plural. And the grammarians who made this particular lexicon say that it has no number, meaning that it's neither singular nor plural. Now, I would have to examine the other passages of scripture in order to determine if there are any places where it is plural. Now, some of those passages, and I'll discuss them here, some of those passages are um, ambiguous or problematical because when we look at the Septuagint or even the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's Kenizzite instead of Kenite. So not every place where we see the, the, um, the name of the Kenites or the word for Cain was that, is that esteemed to be original, the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. If they agree, then I believe that they're certainly more accurate than the Masoretic text. The earliest copies of the Masoretic text we have don't date before the 10th century. They're from like 900 and something A.D., and there's two of them. There's the Aleppo Codex, and then there's the Codex 
Leningradensis or the Codex Leningrad. And it's only called that because that's where it happens to be. Rabbis in Russia had evidently had that codex and it remained there. So that that is the um, <clears throat> portion to the Codex Aleppo, which was at one time complete, came up missing after the Jews had taken Jerusalem in 1967. So I wonder how that happened, right? But the Codex Leningradensis <laughs> is mostly complete or, or entirely complete so far as um, the Jewish canon is concerned. So that's basically the standard codex upon which all reproductions of the Hebrew are based in modern times today. But it's certainly not an ideal. That's the representative of the Masoretic text. It's sometimes compared to the Codex Aleppo, and actually um, one has been used to correct the other by various scholars, but that's the best we have for the, for the Hebrew, and it's not good at all. It's really not. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, are a lot more reliable. And some of them agree generally in most readings with the Masoretic text, but there are differences where the variant readings found in the Septuagint are supported by the Dead Sea Scrolls rather than the places um, where the Septuagint and the Masoretic text differ. The Dead Sea Scrolls basically or generally favor the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic text. So the variant readings between the two versions of scripture um, if you needed a referee to moderate between them. The Dead Sea Scrolls is very often that referee. One problem being that many important places, which I, which I, would, which I had endeavored to inquire into the Dead Sea Scrolls in order to determine which reading is the better reading, are missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are passages in Jeremiah, and especially in Genesis, where I would love to read the Dead Sea Scrolls, and those portions are actually missing from the scrolls. The fragments didn't survive, or perhaps something else, right? Some other reason, but they're missing. So I can't make accusations that the Jews, oh, they destroyed those fragments. I, we can't really um, make that accusation, but... It's kind of peculiar to me sometimes that the most crucial passages I want to see just happen to be missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, well. <laughs> Deuteronomy 23. Well, they would know what seven. verses are a danger to them. Yeah. Deuteronomy 23 7 comes to mind, right? <laughs> That's just one. Um, there are many passages in Genesis and Jeremiah that I can recall that um, I would love to see the Hebrew with the Dead Sea Scrolls and can't because they're missing. That's, that's, that, that's life, but we have the truth through Christ. And, and as I've often said, and even written on at length, if the Old Testament is um, viewed through the lens of the apostles and the words of Christ in the New Testament, then we can understand it. And if we don't accept that, we're never going to understand it. So, where Weissman claims that there is no evidence that Cain's descendants intermix with the Canaanites, that is simply not true. 
although the evidence in the Old Testament is circumstantial. You know, the Old Testament isn't a record of the deeds of the Kenites and the Canaanites. It's not. It only informs us about them to the extent that it needed to in relation to the ancient children of Israel and, and their history and their interaction with them. First, we believe that in Genesis chapter 6, the phrase sons of God, as it appears in the Masoretic text, should probably read sons of heaven, as it does in the Enoch literature found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Codex Alexandrinus actually um, kind of indirectly corroborates that assertion because it has angels rather than sons of God in two places in Genesis chapter 6. That's a rather late witness, but we would rather understand the term through the Enoch literature found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have already discussed this at length earlier in this series of presentations where Weissman had addressed Genesis 6 and I shall not repeat it all here. There is a paper at Christogenia titled The Problem with Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4, which discusses it at length. If the imagined angels of Genesis chapter 6 are fallen angels, which we believe they must have been, then we see their proclivity to mix with other races, including the Adamic race, is clear. Later, later in history, the Canaanites, who were cursed for another reason, shared that same proclivity. This is evident in many places in the Old Testament, and first in Genesis chapter 34, where we see the words of Hamor of Shechem, who was a Canaanite, to the men of Israel concerning their sister, Dinah. And we read in Genesis chapter 34, verse 8. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I pray you give her to him to wife and make you marriages with us and give your daughters unto us and take our daughters unto you. And this next passage reveals the whole reason for this attitude among the Canaanites. And you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell, and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. So we see that intermarriage, which was often race mixing, was how peace was maintained between the different tribes dwelling in the same land. And in Exodus chapter 34, we see that it must have been a popular phenomenon because the children of Israel were warned against it. So we see that it must have been the custom of the Canaanites. For thou shalt worship no other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest, and now we have the reason why they were told not to worship other gods, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, 
and they go a whoring after their gods. These Baal fertility rituals all revolved around sex acts, sexual acts performed right at the altars. And they go a whoring after their gods and do sacrifice unto their gods and call and one calls thee and you eat of his sacrifice. And now we're going to see the results of that in verse 16. And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons and their daughters go a whoring after their gods and make thy sons go a whoring after their gods to follow their customs, which were all perverted. Sodom and Gomorrah, the same Canaanites were the Canaanites of Sodom and Gomorrah. Never do we read that the Canaanites resisted race mixing as the Israelites had been commanded to do. Never. When we turn to the prophets, and this is clear in Hosea, in the, um, I think it's Hosea chapter 5, and we read, and I'll probably start from verse 6, verse 5. And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. And when you go back a few verses, you see that that was because they followed these false religions. They followed these other tribes. Ephraim committed whoredom and Israel is defiled. That's why they begot strange children. The same language we see here in Exodus chapter 34 or everywhere else, there are admonitions against this because all of the pagan religions of the time were sexually licentious. They taught sexual license as a matter of their fertility beliefs and their fertility rituals. So, yeah, and um, whenever we've encountered a lot of these other races, even the concept of husband-wife is often alien to them. They live a completely different lifestyle. You know, the exclusivity of a man and a woman. Absolutely, yes. We see um, the entire world of Christendom, the former Christendom, are now fully immersed in, in this same type of sin. Instead of going to temples... They go to nightclubs or bars. And, and if you look at the temples of the ancient world, Paul talked about eating and drinking in temples. The temples of the ancient world were the centers of entertainment and the restaurants and bars of the ancient world were the temples. And people went there to score. They went there to get drunk, to get their bellies full and to score. I've written on that in other contexts. I broken cisterns, perhaps my broken cisterns series of two essays, I think. I've written on it there, I believe. So in Genesis chapter 15, we see that the habits of the Canaanites here, right? That they're into this intermarriage with other tribes to keep 
peace in the land and so that people can trade with one another. <clears throat> I'm sorry, that's the basis for Mystery Babylon, the, the pursuit of riches and commerce over the welfare of one's own people and race. That's what Mystery Babylon's all about. So in Genesis chapter 15, we see a description of the people of Canaan, and the following tribes were mentioned from verse 19. They're all living together. The Kenites, the descendants of Cain, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, people that have no etymology in the Bible. They're not found in Genesis chapter 10, and there are a few others here like that. And the Hittites, they're the descendants of Heth, who was a son of Canaan. So they're Canaanites. Even though the Canaanites are mentioned here specifically, there are certain descendants of the Canaanites who became very notable. And for that reason, they earned having their own name, right? And the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim, and the Rephaim are the giants. And the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Some of these are divisions of the Canaanites, notable families among the Canaanites. The Amorites are Canaanites, the Jebusites are Canaanites. They were the inhabitants of early Jerusalem before it was taken by the Israelites. Others may be identified with the fallen angels, namely the Kenites and the Rephaim. But others have no earlier mention in scripture and are likely to have been of some unidentified race or origin. Supporting that is another passage referring to people across the Jordan east of Canaan, found in Genesis chapter 14. There we see mentioned the Rephames, who are more giants, right? The Rephames in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shada Kiriathim. This Ham is a reference to a portion of what is now called Arabia, and may have included part of Mesopotamia, which was occupied by Canaanite and other Hamitic tribes, notably Cush. The empire of Nimrod, a grandson of Ham, Nimrod was a son of Cush, began in lower Mesopotamia and grew into Arabia to the border of Egypt. The Canaanites are also descendants of Ham, in spite of their having been cursed. The Rephaim and Emim in that passage are both connected to the Nephilim the fallen angels, and both are reckoned among the so-called giants. But Zuzim means roving creatures. So unless they are also called Zamzumims, a group of giants which are mentioned later in Deuteronomy chapter 2, then they are also of some unidentifiable race, and they apparently did not even have a proper name being identified only as roving creatures, as the word is interpreted. All of these presumed people were dwelling in the same land of Canaan. 
all of them trading and interacting over many centuries and in light of the Canaanite customs of intermarrying with their neighbors, which is evident in Genesis and elsewhere, there is sufficient circumstantial evidence supporting our assertion that the Canaanites in Genesis certainly did mingle themselves with the Kenites and the Rephaim. In fact, many Canaanite cities even had Rephaim for their kings, which is fully evident in the biblical accounts of the Amorites and kings such as Og of Bashan. Various tribes of giants are mentioned along with the Canaanites throughout the books of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, describing the conquest of Canaan, and the Kenites were present as well. But over the 430-year period, from the call of Abraham to the giving of the law at Sinai, and the additional decades down to the crossing of Joshua into Canaan, the list of tribes in the land had somewhat changed. So, in the accounts of the conquest of Canaan, some of the tribes listed in Genesis 15 are no longer mentioned explicitly. Others are not always listed, but, but they remain present and are mentioned in other contexts. By the time of David, many of the Rephaim had been killed. But some remained as mercenaries among the Philistines, and Goliath was an example. All throughout that time, it is evident that they also were mixing their seed with the seed of Canaan. Giants were also mentioned in a literature of Mesopotamia, such as the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh, and were not confined to Palestine and the biblical narrative. So we cannot imagine that they were ever all exterminated. People move. People move. People migrate. People wander. And the race of Cain was to be a wandering race, as we're told in Genesis. In that literature, we also find men mixing with women of other tribes. So we can't imagine that they didn't all mix together. The children of Israel, there were reasons why, over and over again, they were told not to mix, because everyone else was mixing it up. Yeah, and we see all those nations and cultures just evaporated, <laughs> they just disappeared. Like, uh, as you've said many times, you know, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, they're all gone now. They're just finished. You, you, you can't even identify the people there with them. They're all just mixed bunch of Arabs. Right, and, and I've explained from Egyptian literature that very fact, it, it, and, and I've cited the, um, the poetry of an ancient Egyptian prophet named Ipu-Wer, I-P-U-W-E-R. And Ipu-Wer, in early Egypt, other races of people, whether we consider them people or not, right, other races of people were not considered to be people. Only Egyptians were considered to be people. That's how they defended themselves. That's how they kept their 
bloodline pure. Only Egyptians were people. And Ipu were complained as Egypt in the Middle Kingdom had transformed itself slowly into an empire that aliens were becoming people. How would aliens become people? Well, in the United States, when you read the, the federal constitution, black slaves were not considered to be people. They were counted as six-tenths of a person for apportionment purposes, but they were not considered to be people. They had none of the um, advantages or privileges under the law that people have. But with the 14th Amendment, all of a sudden, not only black former black slaves, but all sorts of other beasts suddenly became people. And the states were more or less forced, compelled by force, to recognize them as people. So aliens became people, just like Ipu were, had lamented over Egypt in like 2000 BC, 1900 BC. I don't have the date in my head, but it was right around then, 4,000 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, right? And the 14th yeah. Amendment. And, and you can also see even in our white nations now, like a lot of our, um, you know, cultures, dialects, customs, it's all gradually fading away. You know, uh, I don't know uh, America that well, but I know you have like Northerners, uh, would you call it Yankees, Southerners? You have the same thing in England, but with all this race mixing, it's just gradually fading away. Right. I, I mean, you go to certain um, towns and cities in both the South and the North here in America, and you'll see mulattoes, and you'll see such a large population of mulattoes. Clifton's hometown, Clifton and Mahasha's hometown, Fostoria, Ohio. I never saw anything like it in New Jersey, where you had an entire generation of, of it, it was only a small percentage of the people, but there was a significant number of them, of mulattoes, half-breeds between blacks and whites who were like my age. And that meant that there, the race mixing had been going on in, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, because I was born in 1960. I couldn't believe I saw so many mulattoes that were my age, because even where I grew up in New Jersey, such race mixing wasn't accepted in any significant degree until the 1980s. In the 1970s, it was still, as I was coming to maturity, as I was going through my adolescence, it was still considered by most white folk a taboo to even date a Negro, to be able to create mulattoes. But in Ohio, in this one particular area, it had been going on a lot longer to create a whole generation of people my age, who were mulattoes. And I also find that in certain places in the South, in, in um, certain towns and cities in, from Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, I see the same thing. I see a lot, Georgia, I see people of mixed race who are my age or older. So that shows me that the race mixing between black and white had been fully accepted to some degree by the 1950s, 
probably a product of the same forces which gave us the civil rights movement. Now, perhaps the first unions were Jews and blacks that created some sort of um, mulatto-looking creature, right? Um, we were just out to... Zuzim. Yeah, right. Zuzim. Roving creatures. Right, exactly. Um, Melissa and I were out to see, meet somebody yesterday evening, and we stopped for dinner on the way home at a barbecue place, and we saw a, and I say this with my tongue in my cheek, right? We saw a family of a man and a woman and two children, a male, I should say, right? The male was a Negro, and the woman was very short compared to him. And they had two little, um, we like to call them neglets or shitlets or whatever, two toddler age children. And when I saw the woman, I told Melissa, I said, she's a Jew. She's a Jew. She had all the Jewish features on, on her face, but she didn't have the big hooked nose. But she had the wide mouth and... and um, her eyes were very small and close together, and, and she had features that we associate with Jews. So I'm convinced she's probably a Jew. They loved to race mix in order to try to settle, set an example for whites and lead whites down the same path. Oh, they're doing it. That's a white woman with that Negro. It's okay for them. Why, why can't it be okay for me? They have been the leaders in that. I noticed that as a young man in, in the 1970s that most of the race mixers I saw in New York were Jews. And they can always live off benefits. You know, they don't have to make their way in life like us. Well, I'm certain that when Joshua and the Israelites invaded the land of Canaan, that there was probably some half-breed, refame Canaanite that looked white enough, whispering over the shoulders of a lot of these people, oh, God didn't mean to exterminate all the Canaanites. Oh, we're people just like you. And, and all of this egalitarian um, propaganda that we're fed today was probably being fed to these ancient Israelites as they distributed themselves into their little colonies around the land of Canaan. I would bet. I would bet that Eli James was whispering over their shoulders. God didn't mean all the Canaanites. Some Canaanites are good. They could get blessings. <laughs> Look at the dog. <laughs> Look at what Jesus is going to say to the dog. <laughs> okay. By the way, is that is that the pudgy Jew boy from Chicago? Yes, the pudgy rabbi Jew boy from Chicago. <laughs> Depending on the mood I'm in at the time when I think about him. So... In any event, an honest investigation of scripture refutes Charles Weissman, where he had claimed that there is no evidence that Cain's descendants intermixed with the Canaanites. There certainly is all sorts of evidence. But Weissman made a further claim, and he said that the use of that term in reference to the Jews of Christ's time is completely inaccurate since those Jews were actually Israelites. The term Jew is just a mistranslation for Judean. And we would agree that the word Jew comes from Judean, in spite of the fact 
that Jews want us to believe that the term comes from Judah. The term Judea did come from Judah, but Judah designates a particular tribe. While in the first century, Judea was a name for a geographical entity which included people of many tribes and became a Roman province. We have established beyond doubt from Josephus, Strabo, Ezekiel, Malachi, and Paul of Tarsus that among the inhabitants of Judea were Edomites, Canaanites, and others who were all under compulsion to convert to Judaism from the time of John Hyrcanus from around 129 BC, and that policy continued down to the time of Herod, the Edomite, who became a king of Judea. Once again, we will repeat the fact that in the Gospel of John, Yahshua Christ had told his adversaries that ye believe not because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you, as it is recorded in John chapter 10. He did not say, ye are not of my sheep because ye believe not. Rather, he said, ye believe not because you are not of my sheep. The only place it is recorded that he had explained any such thing to them earlier is in John chapter 8. That alone proves our interpretation of John chapter 8 is the correct one and is supported by all of the documentation we have referred to here, which we have already fully elucidated fully earlier in this series. Weissman's claim that those Jews were actually Israelites is also refuted in many other scriptures. Paul of Tarsus in Romans 9 prayed for his kinsmen according to the flesh because they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And Christ warned in Revelation chapter 2 that I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews or properly Judeans and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. So, if there are people in Judea who are not Israelites, and if the priests and rulers are not the sheep, where his very purpose, as he professed it, was for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, then how can Weissman insist that all those people were Israelites? Especially when it is so clear in history that they are not. And we have detailed those histories throughout the series. He just insists they were all Israelites when Christ said, you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. How could they not be a sheep if they are Israelites? When we go back to, through the Psalms to see who the sheep were, the sheep weren't just believers. The sheep were Israelites even when they didn't believe. That's how they got lost in the first place. Because they didn't believe. Because they were in a state of apostasy. They got lost. 
So they weren't sheep because they believed. They were sheep whether or not they believed. Charles Weissman is such a damned liar. He is so deceitful and treacherous. Yeah, and that only explains why there was all this commotion wherever Christ went. There was always a group of people who, no matter what, were always opposed to him. Right. And he never accepted them either. He always just told them you're going to burn in your sins. Right. And today, Christian identity fulfills that same role. We're hated. We have these, um, no matter what kind of history and, and scripture we elucidate, we have these people who have constant antipathy for us that hate us simply because we, we express the positive side of this message. You don't have to get into two seed line. All you have to do is start teaching the identity of the so-called lost sheep and you're hated and you're demonized by the enemies of God who have stolen that identity for themselves. And, and because they're a remnant of, of these leftover people of Edom and, and mixed with Judah, because they're a remnant of those, they claim the identity of the, all the 12 tribes who were never in Judea in the first century. It's incredible. It, it, the deceit is incredible. And Charles Weissman is perpetuating it. He's still perpetuating it to this day, as long as you have these clowns that followed him out there teaching against two sea line. That's Charles Weissman at work. Speaking of Antichrist, the Apostle John said in chapter two of his first epistle, speaking of Antichrists, they went out from us but they were not of us. Now, John didn't use the um, method of historical explanation that we see in, in Luke or in Paul. Um, John's language is very plain and simple and to the point. Throughout his writings, it's the same style, and it's always very um, kind of kind of prophetic and poetic at the same time, but it's very simple. John wasn't trying to teach anybody history. Paul was. That was Paul's um, ministry. So rather than make this lengthy explanation of Jacob and Esau, like Paul did, and, and the reasons for the divisions in Romans chapter 9, John simply very humbly stated, they went out from us, but they were not of us because they weren't really Israelites. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, as Paul said. For if they had been of us, my sheep hear my voice, they would no doubt have continued with us. My sheep hear my voice, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You don't believe me, because you're not my sheep. Paul in Romans 9 explained that same thing where he compared Jacob and Esau and called the Edomites vessels of destruction as opposed to the Israelite vessels of mercy. Charles Weissman is clearly a vessel of destruction endeavoring to obscure forever these basic truths of scripture. 
And you could say the same about our nations now, that there are Germans who aren't really Germans or English who aren't English or Americans who aren't really from America. Absolutely. These other people. If you walked into America today and, and never studied its past and took it for granted that Americans are all Americans, then you would be persuaded that niggers fought the Revolutionary War and niggers wrote the Constitution. You would be persuaded, like so many fools actually are today, that niggers built America. And there are people repeating that just now as niggers are destroying half the cities in America, right now. And those same people, I, I saw a, a, a statement somebody posted in, in the chat of Christagenia that was a screen snap of a Twitter post and some cucked out white man was saying, oh, it's okay for um, blacks to destroy our cities since they built them for free. Insisting that blacks built these cities of America and never got paid for it. That's what they're saying. They can't imagine that before these um, Negroes had moved into all these cities, that they were at all actually entirely white cities built by white men. And when the niggers moved in, because the Jewish um, bankers and real estate agents made sure that they could move in, when the niggers moved in, the white men fled. So now the niggers occupy the entire city, or at least the, the greater parts of it. And this is true in cities all over. I don't know about the West Coast because I've never driven through those cities, but I have driven through all of the cities east of the Mississippi, as well as in a few states west of the Mississippi. And I don't care if it's Milwaukee or Wisconsin or, or um, Newark, New Jersey or, or Atlanta, Georgia, or, or what city it is, Memphis, Tennessee, practically every one of our cities is almost fully occupied by blacks. And they've destroyed Yeah, and they're them. claiming that they um, did everything now, that they invented languages, invented maths, engineering. You know, it, it's just ludicrous now what they claim, and nobody challenges it. And it's Jewish propaganda that, that enables those claims. It's all Jewish propaganda. That's where it begins. That enables all those claims. And the media, the Jewish-controlled media, repeats all those claims, or it modifies them so that they're not, not as fantastic, and then repeats them. It revises them to, to make them sound more rational to the average, uneducated white man. And no white man with the 16th grade education is actually educated in America. No, forget it. No, the colleges are a joke, the high schools are a joke, the grade schools are a joke, they're all a joke. If you have an education in America, it only means that you've been um, trained to a degree acceptable for to fill some role or other in a corporation. That's what education is, or, or some government agency. That's what education is in America today. It makes sure that you conform. Yeah. You're um, trained to conform and to fulfill specific tasks in some corporate office or government agency. That's what education is today. It's bullshit. 
doesn't teach you anything. Classical yeah, people noticed that like 50 years ago and were speaking out. So it's only gone worse. Yeah, right. They were speaking out, but their voices are lost because the Jewish-controlled media is never going to um, understand the gravity of their concerns or adopt them, even if they do understand them, because it goes against the program. They, too, being the tools of the international banks and corporations which own them. Charles Weissman is... He's facilitated all of this. I, I mean, he, 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 he's, um, this is a very small segment of our society, Christian identity, but it's a very important segment of our society. And if we don't stand in the truth, we're going to be stomped out with the rest of the liars. Yeah, and as you said, he's trying to block the truth. He's um, another one of their... Um... What's the word? Fake truthers. You know, there's every hole. There's always one of them, and he's just one of them. Well, well, it, it's kind of funny that Weissman, one of the things that he was known for in identity circles was that he was an expert on the law. And, and Christ said, Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering you hindered and that's what charles weissman has done he's hindered so many identity christians from the door to the kingdom of heaven so that's incredible to me but they let him get away with it by accepting these lies without inspecting them every um christian identity book i read even clifton's writings which i edited for years I read very critically, and, and everything I didn't agree with in Clifton's writings, I mean, I have copies of a lot of those letters here in my papers um, from 15, 18 years ago. Everything I didn't like in Clifton's writings that I thought was wrong, I, I wrote him at length in order to try to correct him. On occasion, I'm sure he probably turned out to be right, but... If I thought something was wrong, I challenged it, which led us both to study further and, and helped us both. That's the way it should be. Yeah, that's how you enhance your light or sharpen your blade. You go back and forth. Uh, you know, you get slightly different views. You challenge each other and it only makes you study harder and come to the truth. Right. Absolutely. That's always been our attitude. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us once again. And if we, um, I, I don't, we might do a an end times update with with Donald Fox next week. I think so. I'll let you know by. I'll do my best to let you know by Monday, if I can. I'll try to contact Don over the weekend. Okay. Yeah. No problem. I look Wonderful. forward to listening to that. Yeah, and and um, we'll definitely be back here within the next two weeks for um, part 18, and sooner or later, we're going to get through chapter four of this book, right? <laughs> There's only <laughs> yeah. about two and a half pages left, I think. But this has to be discussed. This has to be discussed and explained. Because some of these bold-faced lies he made, that, that, that they are, I mean, they can be refuted, but it takes a couple of pages to refute each one. 
That's he has so many lies. I got to keep writing page after page after page. <laughs> it doesn't end, right? Thank you, Truthfids, and and it, it's um really great to do this with you, and I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Bill. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of all these Zuzims out there. Thank you. <laughs> the Zuzims, roving creatures. Why would God call people roving creatures? That's funny. <laughs> okay. Praise Christ. Good night.